morning. Hey, uh, thanks for thanks for saying hi to somebody. Um, and you can you can have a seat. Hey, if you're uh, if you're watching online from home or with a house gathering or at another time, um, thanks for being with us in this way. Wish we could be in the same physical space, um, but so glad that you're you're here with us uh, watching. Um, and uh, if you stood up and walked around your house or apartment and greeted somebody, way to go, even better. Um, thanks for saying hi to somebody here in this room. Um, hey, just wanted to, to add something. Uh, texts don't always come through in the ideal moments, maybe. And uh, Kim, as she just led us in prayer to pray for Haiti, was waiting on a text from uh, some friends here within, within our church um, because uh, we had a few of us had been asked to pray kind of confidentially um, for uh, about I think it was a week a week and a half ago or so um, our our partnership for gosh 14 years with Haiti Foundation for Hope um, um, has has been really with a, a significant work that happens there in in Haiti in the city of uh, Terre Blanche and um, the person that leads that is a is a pastor named Delamy. Uh, and Delamy was, was in the States uh, recently, and while he was here, a very good friend of his, who is also a pastor in Haiti, uh, had been kidnapped, and uh, Delamy was obviously just <laughs> frightened, scared, as his, family's, his friend's family was, of course, and we were asked to pray but couldn't share any of that, and so we joined a whole lot of other people that were praying, um, and God answered that prayer, and Delamy's friend uh, was released uh, home. Um, and is alive and with his family uh, today. And so that is an answer to prayer. So as we just stood and prayed, uh, know that God hears us um, and answers prayer. And uh, when we cry out along with the, the people of Haiti for what's going on there, uh, God hears all of our prayers and is faithful to answer. Uh, and sometimes it goes like exactly how we're praying. Uh, other times it doesn't. Uh, but we're going to remain faithful and pray for that. Um, if you... Uh, want to pray for Afghan, you can. Uh, many of us are praying for Afghanistan. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to do that. Sorry, I just couldn't pass that up, Kim. I'm sorry. You did. You said Afghan. And, um, but here's how this works. I'm going to talk for about 25, 30 minutes here, and I'm going to say something, and so you can tease me later. But um, yeah, I'm sure I will. But, um, but I do want to uh, put Afghanistan in front of us again, because uh, even this morning, I noticed so many of you are carrying in big tubs. And if you came and you weren't carrying a tub and you're wondering what people are carrying, it's refugee care kits. Um, and uh, we were invited, along with a number of other churches, through the Refugee Care Collective. Um, uh, that, that started here in, in Portland, and we're trying to, to serve and care for and provide for uh, the refugee families that are landing uh, in PDX and moving to places around not just our city, but our state. And so thank you that, that we've got a room off to the side here that is filling up with those. Some of you dropped them off at the office during the week, and thank you that you can continue to do that. I mean, go online and find out more about how you can do that. So uh, one other, uh, actually two other quick things, and then we'll pray and, and dive into scripture. Uh, I want to invite you, uh, if, you if you're on our, our email list and you get that that drops every Thursday, uh, Mosaic Weekly, um, you, and not only if you get it, um, but if you both open it, if you get it and open it, 
and read it once you've opened it. There's a lot to do in that, I realize, but um, if you'd actually read it, you'll, you saw that we're doing something special in a couple weeks. On Sunday, uh, October 31st, which is also Halloween, and I'm told it's also Reformation Day, so mark that on your calendar. Um, but here at 10 a.m., we're doing something special. We're just going to do a fall celebration. It's the end of our series that we've been in, Gardens, Houses, Families. Uh, and then we're, we're just also celebrating some leaders, introducing some new leaders, um, and going to be doing a lot of fun stuff. So October 31st, if you can be and you're comfortable, come and join us in this room. Uh, if that's not safe for you, if you're not ready to do that, please uh, be watching and, and log in and that kind of a thing. But it's going to be a special Sunday. Um, I don't know all the details yet. You can read about those as they're coming out, but just want to put that on your calendar. Um, and then three weeks after that is our Thanksgiving celebration. And so November 21st, um, we bring food for those that are in need in our city uh, here the building. We'll find other ways to drop that off if you can't be here. Um, and then we're also doing baptisms. And so if you're ready to, in front of your church family, say, I'm following Jesus and have not been baptized, we're going to be doing that uh, this that Sunday as well, November 21st. So two weeks from now, October 31st, and then whatever it is, five weeks from now is, is November 21st, two significant Sundays in the life of our church. So hey, let's, let's pray, and then we're going to go to Scripture together. So uh, would you close your eyes and take a very deep breath, and let's Again, ask God to, to meet us here and to lead us and guide us as we, as we look to his word. God, I was thinking these words as I was driving here today, um, and then we sang a song that said these exact same words, but, um, but God, you are beautiful, and all beauty is your beauty. Uh, and as we look around us in our city right now and see the leaves changing, uh, and the beauty and the colors that we could not on our own paint or imagine or come up with. That is your handiwork. That is from you. Uh, and just simply looking at them and appreciating them and being in awe of them, we're in awe of you. And so, God, you are beautiful. You are good. You are righteous. You are holy. And with the things that we sing and the things that we say and the things that we think about and the way that we treat one another, not just in this time but throughout our lives, and our weeks, would those all point to you as being glorious and worthy of our attention and our worship and our very lives? And Holy Spirit, we ask for your help in doing that because we can't do it on our own. And so would you help and move in us? Would you form us even in this time that we're gathered here? Would you change us in some small way, some significant way? Holy Spirit, would you be working and moving beyond the bounds of this room and our ability to focus and to pay attention. Would you be working, Holy Spirit? And Jesus, we love you. We need you. We call you our King and our Savior. Would you guide us and lead us as we look to your word now? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We are living in an isolation that would have been unimaginable to our ancestors and yet we have never been more accessible. Over the past three decades, technology has delivered to us a world in which we need not be out of contact for a fraction of a moment. In 2010, at a cost of 300 million, 800 miles of fiber cable, optic cable was laid between the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange to shave three milliseconds off trading times. Yet within this world of instant and absolute communication, unbounded by limits of time or space, 
we suffer from unprecedented alienation. We have never been more detached from one another or lonelier. According to one major study, about 20% of Americans, or 60 million people, are unhappy with their lives because of loneliness. Just wanted to start on a real cheery note. That, that statistic was, was done that 20%, 60 million people in America, roughly, are unhappy with their lives because of loneliness. That was, that was actually a study that was done pre-pandemic. And I've, I've been told by reputable sources that Zoom didn't fix that. So we probably have more people that are unhappy with their lives be, because of loneliness. We know that there's an epidemic of, of loneliness. We know that people struggle with it. We know that we struggle to connect. We know that we're, we're in relationships and we have friends and we have families and we have spouses and we have lifelong friends and we have best friends and yet loneliness still is a struggle for many of us. We know that our city is known for being lonely and that actually affects not just how we feel but it affects behavior. And we, if I can say we as a, as a church family, we as a church was one of among many churches in, in our city, would all claim, and we believe, and we even sing about, that the answer to our human condition in total, and specifically when it comes to loneliness, is in the person and work of Jesus. That, that God is the answer to our loneliness, that he invites us into relationship with himself. And many of us in this room right now, and many of us watching this, would say, I have a relationship with God, but yet I'm still lonely. And yet God has a as an invitation to each of us for a way to, to move out of that loneliness and closer to the intimacy and relationship that he has designed us for. We're, we're unhappy because of loneliness, because the God of the universe created us with this capacity and need and desire and want to be intimately connected with other people. And so God invites us into a relationship with himself, but he also invites us into a relationship with other people. His desire and his design for each and every one of us is that we would be placed in the context of something that we would call a family. I want to back up and, and do a quick recap of where we've been and why we're talking about family today. And then I want to look forward into how Jesus defined and talked about family. So real quick to look backwards, we're in this series that we've called Gardens and Houses and Families and the Future of Our Church. And we've taken these three images, a garden, a house, and a family, these three things that we're familiar with that we can understand that are easy to wrap our minds around. We've taken them from a passage of a letter that, that a guy named Jeremiah wrote so many years ago, thousands of years ago, because God had given him some words to give to his extended family, his friends, his nation, because they had drifted away from following God. And he's given these words that were difficult to give, and he wasn't real popular as he was delivering them, but he, he wrote them out in the letter, and we have this book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And we've looked at this, this situation that he's writing to where the people of God have been taken from their land that for them was where they wanted to spend their entire lives, and it shaped their life, and it was good in so many ways. And they were taken from their land, from Jerusalem specifically, and taken to a new land and placed in a city called Babylon. 
And they're in Babylon, and Jeremiah writes this letter, the book of Jeremiah, to them. And we've taken these verses where he, he says, in the midst of, of significant transition, significant disruption, significant change, that God is giving them directions. And we all are experiencing significant disruption, trans, uh, transition, and change in our life and in our world right now, that we're in significant change. Some of us, we've, we, we've kind of distanced ourselves from the transition a little bit, and we've gotten back to some sense of normal, or we've gotten to some place that we've called normal again, although it's probably very different. And others of us feel it on a regular, daily basis. It's this visceral thing that so many things around us are changing, and we're trying to get our bearings. And over and over and over through Scripture, what we find and over and over and over through many of our lives, what we can testify to is that God gives direction to us in the midst of transition and change. And this is, this is one of them. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we read these directions from God for a people that God loves that are in the midst of change. He says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Increase in number there and do not decrease. So there's where we get our gardens, houses, and families. But when he talks about families, he's, he's saying in addition to, to plant a garden and eat, because that's what you would do when you were in Jerusalem. Build houses because you need shelter. That's what you would do in Jerusalem. And then you would grow your families. You would, you would be thinking about, do we want to have kids? Do I have a wife? Do I have a husband? Can I have kids? When I do have kids, can, can they find houses, husbands and wives? And will they have kids? And what will our legacy be? And how will our family grow? And God is saying, do that in Babylon as well. In this place that is threatening and uncomfortable and foreign and in many ways evil. But God says, I've actually placed you there. Oh, there's so many questions that go along with that, I realize. We'll come back to those another day maybe. But God's placed them there. And he says, even in this place where you're in exile, where you're a foreigner, do the things that you would do here. Put in roots. Be the kind of people that I've created you to be. And part of that is to have families and to grow and increase and not to decrease. Don't push on pause. Don't pull back. Don't just hold your breath till you get back to normal. But continue to move forward and to grow and increase as a family. These three questions that we've asked along with these three, for gardens, we've asked the question of what sustains life. And we've answered it in the person and work of Jesus, that the things that connect us to a relationship with God is what sustains life. And so we have to all assess our own lives, or what are the things that we're doing that we think sustain our life? And what are the things that we need to weed out, that we need to pull out and focus on, what it means to know and follow and hear the voice of Jesus? Houses, we've asked the question of where has God placed you? We looked over the, the, the last couple weeks of what that means biblically and then how we can live that out as, as a church. And what it means for us as a church is that wherever God has placed us in the places that we live in our neighborhoods and our work and our professions and office spaces and where we find ourselves roughly eight hours a day or however much you work, where we play, where we have hobbies and spend free time, where we learn, where we're in school and at college and, and graduate school, whatever it may be, wherever the places is that God has put us, that he's put us there because he wants his presence to be there through us, his followers. And the last question is, goes along with families is this, is that who are we with? Not where are we, but who are we with? Who are we doing life with? Who is running close to us? And Jesus has this way, as he does in so many ways, of turning what we think we've got really well-defined and understood and that we're familiar with, and he just turns it on its head. 
And he does this with the idea of family as well. If you've got a Bible, find your way to, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, um, which is after the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus is coming through this, this day where he's been really busy. And um, not all of Jesus' days are busy, but this one has been full and he's been teaching. Um, and when he teaches, he inspires kind of the common people. And they look at him as somebody with authority and power in the words that he says. And then he kind of rattles and makes uncomfortable the religious leaders. And they actually, in verses prior to what we're going to read, it says that they were finding a way to kill him. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, were so uncomfortable with what Jesus was saying and doing that they wanted to find a way to kill him. And then Jesus also was healing people. And so people that literally were sick or were crippled or had a diseased hand or leprosy, he was, he was healing that and setting it back to wholeness and rightness and health. That Jesus was healing on the spot better than any doctor could do. And then he also did this other thing where, where somebody was brought to him who was demon-possessed. This demon-possessed. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced anyone that has been demon-possessed or if you've just gotten a, maybe a, an image of it from um, horror movies or exorcism movies or something like that, that it's not a good scene. Somebody's brought to, to Jesus who's demon-possessed, and Jesus, in power and authority, cast out the demon and helps set the person back to normal, to right, to healthy, to good. And so the crowd around him is seeing this, and they're hanging on every word that he has. And he's in a home, and the home has been packed, and it's full, and they're listening to Jesus' words, and that's where we pick up. In chapter 12, verse 46, it says this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Mother and his brothers, I, I, when I read this, I immediately put myself in, in, uh, in his mom's shoes. Like, Jesus, you've, what? Come on, like get home. They actually were worried that he was, there was something wrong with him. His mother and his brothers, who you know, kind of knew him the best, had done life with him and raised him and bunked with him in their bedroom and had watched him grow up. He's roughly 30 years old at this point. He should be looking for a wife and settling down and opening up a next generation of a carpentry business. And instead, he's, he's teaching these amazing things and he's healing people. But then he messes up with this, this demon-possessed situation. And they're actually worried that Jesus is now demon-possessed. And they're knocking on the door and they're saying, hey, can you, can you send him out here? Can we talk to him? We want to make sure he's okay and that he's not completely lost it. And the message that comes out to him is he said, well, he says that his mother and his brothers and his sisters are all in there with him. So imagine having to deliver that message. Sorry, Jesus' mom and brothers, his mother and brothers are inside, so I'm going to go back inside. Like, I, mean, I don't know what that looks like exactly. But I wonder if Mary just kind of rolls her eyes and is like, oh, this is the latest. I don't know what his brothers think. His brothers always have kind of an interesting relationship with him until he actually gets crucified and buried and raises again. And then things seem to get on tracks all right. But, but his mother and his... And his brothers, kind of, I just picture them rolling there and being like, all right, we're going to go home and finish dinner or something. I don't know what they do. But what Jesus does here is com completely change the common understanding of family. 
A family right then would have been, no, who is your mother? Who is your father? Who are your brothers and your sisters? And you would have stayed in the home until you reached a certain age and got married. And if you got married and, and you were a husband and you were marrying a wife, your wife would bring into the kind of the, the, the family situation there, expand the property, build another home. If you had a daughter and she was getting married, you would send her, send her off. And, and there was vice versa, actually. That's how that, that situation worked. That was your family. And the lines were really clear. And Jesus is saying, I'm completely expanding it. What he's not saying is he's not saying to, to his mother, Mary, you're not my mom anymore. He's saying what it means to be in family is getting expanded. You're not, you're not done. I'm not ejecting you. I'm just expanding the understanding of family. And he's, he's doing that because he's got a purpose and a mission in mind that the new expanded understanding of family is going to serve and dovetail right in and help. What Jesus is doing here, it might be helpful to think about in terms of cows. I know that's what you were already thinking, so I just want to, want to help fill this in for us. Jesus is, it might be helpful to understand in terms of cows. If you had a three-acre ranch, and some of you are like, man, I am trying to buy a three-acre ranch and, and move there. That would be so much fun. And others of you are like, wait, what's an acre? Um, and, and that's fine. Um, we, we, when you live in the city, you only deal in, in like fractions of, of acres, and so an acre is kind of a, a, a foreign concept that we don't really totally understand. But an acre is like, is like this big. So that's like an acre. And so if you had like three of those kind of sections and you had cows on your ranch and you were trying to get them all together, what you would probably do, most likely do, is to, is to invest in a fence that went around your three acres so that you know that these were your three acres and those were not. That these were your cows that were inside your fence and other cows are not, that they can't get out and others can't get in, that you would protect it by putting it around. That's one way of thinking about who is in and who is out. Or to use Jesus' term, who is my mother's brothers and sisters? Who is my family? Is I'm going to put a fence, and it's going to really clearly define who my family is and who my family isn't. That's what's called a, a bounded set. These were a, a this is a term, and the next term are defined by a guy named Paul Hybert, um, who's kind of a sociologist. He's also a believer, I think. It's a, it's a concept I read about for the first time about 20 years ago in a, in a great book called The Missional Church, um, the sending, A Vision for the Sending of the Church in North America, which is, is where we live. Great book. It's been expanded on a, a ton of times, but this is what's called a bounded set. Now, that's one way of, of defining who's in and who's out. In a bounded set... You define who's in and who's out by your fences, by your, by your clear lines. For us as a church, for many churches, historically as churches, that could be, and it may be, um, a belief system of what's your theology, what's your doctrine. And that decides if, if you can read through it all and say yes to all of it, then, then yes. It, it might be behavior or habits or participation. I do these things, therefore I am in. I'm inside the bounded set. I'm inside the fence. I belong because I know that these are these really clear lines. And I'm just choosing to step inside of that. If I change in some way, I might have to step out. Or worse, somebody might actually put me outside the fence. This is a sociological theory called a bounded set. Now, if you have far more than three acres, if you had, say, 1,500 acres, and you had a lot more cows, a fence would need to be a lot bigger. In fact, you might not even be able to afford a fence. It would be just too extreme, too extraordinary to try to to, to fence in 1,500 acres. I grew up in a city. I uh, visited, I had um, in, um, 
I think I was in ninth grade. I um, got to go to Australia because that's, I have extended family that lives in Australia. And uh, we got to go there and, and in the outback, which is in the inner part of, of the country, nobody lives there. Uh, Aborigines do, and there's very few of them that live there. Most of them live on the coast. Um, there's like nobody there. And they said, hey, we own uh, 1,500 acres in the outback. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And we drove out there and um, they said, here, we're, we're there. And I'm like, where are we? We're, we're, on our, we're on our ranch. And it's like, well, there's, a, there's like a, a hut that you know, like four people could sleep in. And they said, yeah, you're gonna sleep outside. I was like, this is your ranch? Like, it's just, it's just desert with a, a thing there. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, like, where I come from, like, you, you put boundaries around your property lines. And they said, no, we don't have that. Like, we know the person who lives in the next ranch over and, and that kind of thing. And okay, that blew my mind. You can't put a fence around 1,500 acres. And if you do, you'd have to have so much wealth in order to be able to do it. So how do you keep people, how do you keep cows there? You dig wells. You did dig wells, and what is needed to sustain life keeps the cows there. You dig wells that, that draws, that's required for and necessary to maintain life. And the cows are trained. I'm not going to go too far from the well. And if when I do wander off, I know where to come back to. And so you don't need a fence. This is what's called a centered set. A centered set. Jesus, I don't know if he had cows in mind. Maybe he had sheep. But when he sends the message with a guy outside the crowd that's in the house and says, go tell my, my mom and my brothers and sisters that these are now my mom and my brothers and sisters. What he's doing is he's moving from your definition of a, of a fenced-in understanding, of a really clearly defined, this is who's in and this is who's out. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go way beyond that, so big that we've got to change that, that boundary line, that fence. And what we're going to do is we're going to do something more important. We're going to find out the very thing that sustains life. And we're going to be really clear on that. And that's going to define who's my family. And Jesus does that for us. He says, those who do the will of my Father. Father, that's familiar language in and of itself. Not just God Almighty, not the creator of the universe, although that is certainly included, but my Father. Jesus is saying, I'm in a family he doesn't say the Trinity, but that's what he has in mind. I'm in a relationship, and I'm inviting you into that relationship. And it is so life-giving, and is so necessary, and so transformative, that even when you wander off, you'll know where to come back to. There's not a fence that says you're in or you're out. We use that in so many ways, and that's fine, and it's productive and helpful in some ways. But what Jesus has in mind is a centered set. And says, there's something at the center that sustains life. And he puts himself in that place. And so what does it look like for us to expand what we mean by family, to think of all those that we are inviting in to come closer to Jesus? And we assess not are you in or out, but are you on your way closer to knowing and hearing and becoming like Jesus? Or have you taken a step this week or last week further away? And what love looks like and what care looks like is actually stepping with that person and saying, hey, come, let's turn back and get back to the one who gives and sustains life. And let's go towards Jesus. When we understand family, it's that we're centered on Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to redefine to you and I'm going to gift to you what it is that you really need in your loneliness, in your isolation, in your help for looking what life looks like, making sense of the world. It's going to be me and it's going to be those that are on their way to me as well. And I'm going to gift that to you. And we need to be in relationship. We need to be able to answer that question of families, of who are you with? 
with people who, in this centered set, have their eyes focused on and their arrow moving toward Jesus and not away from Jesus. And we absolutely need people in our lives who have their arrow aimed firmly away from Jesus. God has put us next to people who don't want him because he loves them so much, he's willing to put one of his daughters or sons close to them in hopes that they would see him through us and turn and look and face Jesus and move towards Jesus. What this means for us in this world that we now find ourselves in that is going through significant and transition and significant changes, as we look out into the future, when we ask the question for ourselves as a church, what does this look like? We have so many opportunities and there's so much good that can come from this. But the significant change, and I'm going to put it in the words of uh, what has, in the last few months, become a friend named Rob Wagner. He, along with two other guys, wrote a book called The Starfish and the Spirit. And the the whole book is talking about the significant change that we're experiencing in our culture and our world today, and specifically for followers of Jesus in the church. And he says this. He says, the church is not an activity, but an identity. The church is not an activity, but an identity. And so as you hear that, would you self-assess like on the fly? If you were kind of pushed, or maybe not pushed just to to give an answer, but you were pushed just to take an assessment of your life, is your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with the family that is the church, has that become an activity? Or is it part that marks you at the very core of who you are, part of your identity? Has has being a part of something on Sunday morning, whether you're, you're watching in or watching at another time or whether you're in this room right now, has that been kind of the, the outer edges of your understanding and experience of your life with Jesus and your participation in his body, the church? Or has it become a very core part of who you are and you understand your identity, that it's, that it's part of you that you walk around with day in and day out, minute by minute, hour by hour? To be a part of the family known as the church is not an activity, but an identity. And if it is an identity, then this experience does not define us. This experience doesn't even hold us. This experience is something that is meant to, to invest in us and give us encouragement and hope and vision, and then to send us out for the things that God has called us to, wherever he has called us. I read this recently, and it talked about this very kind of a vision, which, which isn't new at all. If you think of what Jesus did with his first disciples when he says, okay, I've conquered death, I rose again, I've commissioned you, you're now sent out to go and make disciples wherever you find yourselves, wherever you go, and I'm going back to heaven, but I'm sending my Holy Spirit with you. And we read that last week, Acts 1.8, that we receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we'll live as his witnesses wherever we go. In the text, it says in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so for us, that's, that's Portland and Vancouver and the ends of the earth. That's where God has placed us. But it's out there. It says this, the church is a decentralized network, is virtually immune to any, get this, pandemic or crisis. And this certainly isn't assessing where we currently are. When it talks about pandemic, it's not talking about COVID-19. It's talking about like COVID-1, like in the first century, like it's, which I don't think that was COVID, but it was a bunch of other things. The church as a decentralized network is virtually immune to any pandemic or crisis. Historian Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, says pandemics that caused social chaos, 
We've got that, we know what that's like. Pandemics that caused social chaos in the Roman Empire in the first, second, third century fueled both the viral growth of the early church and the depth of community in the households of faith. And the depth of community in the households of faith. Crisis actually spurred the church on to further movement that it was designed for because it understood itself as families and not a gathering. It understood itself as households of relationships, as families that were all over whatever city it was in, all over whatever land it was in, not as buildings with addresses and cathedrals built to honor God with the best of intentions. But in the human condition, it limits us and it brings down our imagination and our creativity to a structure instead of being a part of an organic, decentralized movement that God has always promised to fulfill and empower and equip for in every generation, whatever crisis, whatever setting, whatever city, whatever place. But that's what God is calling us to be. The other part of what Jesus is, is casting vision for, the other part that Jesus is defining is that as he is the center and he's inviting people to do his will and his father's will is to come closer to him and to come to know him, that there's no special status, that there's not a ranking of those that have figured it out and are better than those that are just starting off. There's not a, there's not a privileged place for anyone, that everyone has a role and everyone plays a part, that age, gender, socioeconomic status, ethnic status, all of those are evened out. And he says, you are all my children, and I'm inviting all of you to come and to be with me and to know me and hear my voice, and then to be empowered to live for me wherever you are and wherever you find yourself, wherever I've placed you. And so for us as a church in 2021 and headed closely into 2022, that's what's after 2021. Can't believe we're saying that already, or I'm saying that, you don't have to say that. But as we, as we envision the kind of church that God's called us to be, would we not envision this space? What if we didn't envision this space, but we envisioned wherever God has placed us? And we answered that question, those that I'm with, who am I with? Who am I locked arms with? Because it can't be all of us, right? We can't all have a sense of I know each other and we're all family. That would be awesome. And maybe some of you extroverts are looking around and you're like, no, I think I can handle this. As an introvert, I think you're crazy. I wish I had more of your extroversion and could do that, but I'm like, I know the few that I'm linked arms with, and I want it to be a little more, and I want God to stretch me and grow me in that, but I know who I'm linked arms with, who we're, we're pointing our arrows and our eyes toward Jesus, and we're trying to get there and to become more like him. But we can't envision this space, this room, or whatever kind of vision you have when you watch online. But the vision that God is giving us is the, the few that are around us that we've linked arms with that we call family. This is my family as a part of a larger church family that God wants to work through and to heal not just loneliness, but so many other things and empower us to live as sent people wherever he's placed us. And part of that redefinition that Jesus is doing, that expanded definition of family is doing is he's saying, there's, there are different ages, and because we're different ages, we have different things to offer, and there are different life experiences, and because of that, we have different things to offer. 
But one of the things as we think about ages, those that are further along with us turn around and they look down below. And we're going to look, we're going to look more at this next week and say, who's, who's coming up after me? And so I've walked with Jesus for a little while. Who am I helping come in to follow Jesus as well? And that, that we say, I, I know somebody who's helping to lead me and I'm looking behind and I'm inviting somebody else to live and follow me. And as we think of ourselves as family and, and have that kind of vision set up before us, what we see is that different generations are helping one another know and follow Jesus and to keep our eyes on him and to become more like him as we go along. I've got to read this tweet to you that I read in a book that I I'm, feel a little bit embarrassed because I keep pointing to it, but it's such a good book. You should get it and read it. It's called Faith for Exiles, uh, Five Ways the New Generations Can Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. If you get the tide of Babylon there, a foreign setting, a foreign um, place. Um, oh, here it is. There's a tweet that somebody wrote. It says, and you can picture this right here where we are. You can picture this happening relationally. The teenager who looks out over the congregation or their church family, the teenager who looks out over their congregation or church family and thinks, these are my people, I belong here, is most likely to look up and say, you are my God, I belong in your presence. The teenager who looks out over their church family and says, these are my people, I belong here, is most likely to say, is to look up and say, you are my God, I belong in your presence. Do you get the picture there? Do you get the, the trajectory, the focus, where the eyes are? Because of what I see in my church family, I know that God loves me and wants to be with me, that I'm designed for and created for relationship with him. When Jesus radically expands an understanding of family, He's moving from any kind of thing that draws lines around, and he says, no, I'm at the center. Come and follow me. Some of you are further along than others. Help the others and come and follow. And we're going to look more in this next week of how we want to live this out and what this looks like as a church. But he's saying you're designed, created, wired to be a part of a church family that is not defined based on its gathering time and its building, but based on its pursuit of Jesus and the relationship that God's gifted us along the way. One of the one of the habits that reinforces this, one of the habits that helps build us and helps us comprehend and let it sink down into our very being is coming back to Jesus. And one of the ways that we do that is through communion. And so if you're watching online, if you want to take a moment and grab, if you haven't already, uh, something to drink, juice and, and bread or crackers. If you're here in, in this space and you haven't grabbed a cup and you want to run out to the lobby and do that right now, you've got a minute to do that. Um, I've got mine. Here's the trick, and this is super meaningful and spiritual, but if we don't say it, it's, it's not helpful. But if you push down on the tab first, you got a better chance of meeting Jesus when you take communion out of this cup. There's a, there's a holiness to coming to communion that cannot be derailed by a sticky, disposable communion cup or by sitting on your couch in your pajamas. It, it, it's not intended to be derailed by whatever it is that we're taking a sip of or placing in our mouth. What it does is it, it forms us as daughters and sons of God 
to say that we need Jesus. We need his body to be broken some 2,000 years ago, his blood to be shed, for him to be buried in the grave and to conquer death and rise again, and that Jesus is alive and with us today. And so as we do this, we're reminded not only that we have a Savior, but that he's put us in a family to live and to thrive in our modern day, whatever we want to call it, Babylon, post-Christian environment, crazy city, beautiful city, but that we need Jesus in order to do that. And so Jesus, now as we, as we drink this cup and as we taste this cracker or bread or whatever it is that we have, we're reminded of, of your good news for us, that you invite us into life with you and with your people. We love you and we need you. In the name of Jesus, amen.